The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing our series in this wonderful gospel, Mark chapter 4, reading the account of Jesus calming the storm at verse 35 through the end of chapter 4. Mark 4:35. let us hear God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Fear not. One of the most frequent, if not the most frequent, commands of the Bible. But it is no small thing to face our fears with trust in the living Lord. Here is this very familiar incident. Anyone familiar with the Gospels knows very well this report of Jesus calming the storm. The Sea of Galilee, as you read about it, I've never been there, but apparently there are low-lying mountains around it, and there is one area to the southeast where there's a break in the mountains, and it's there that often storms come through and hit very suddenly upon this sea. And to the fishermen among the disciples who were planning to go across the sea here with Jesus, such a commute, we might say, would be a pretty ordinary thing. It might be like our driving our car up 283 to Harrisburg or something like that. They, these fishermen were used to being out on the sea, and there were times of the day that it was more likely to storm, I think, and maybe in the, the late afternoon. So they would often fish in the evening and night and in the morning. But in this case, we see that a frightening storm quickly comes up, And it ends dramatically by Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, not a fisherman by trade, Jesus demonstrating his power and his lordship when the fishermen were helpless before the storm. And certainly, we know that the disciples' problem during this experience 
was that they were diverted from trusting Jesus because of the storm, and they were looking at the storm instead of looking at Jesus Christ. What can we learn from this account of Jesus calming the storm? The first point point that I'd like us to see is that in our fear, we must bring to mind it is Jesus, our Lord, who sovereignly leads us into the storm. In our fear, we must bring to mind that it is Jesus, our Lord, who sovereignly leads us, who sovereignly takes us into the storm. Because as we read this account, we see that it is Jesus who originated the plan to cross the sea. He is taught from a boat on the shore. Often he did that to so that the crowds wouldn't press upon him too much. And we see that on that day he's taught, and here we are at the end of chapter 4, and it is Jesus who says, let us go across to the other side. The plan originated with Jesus himself. Crossing the sea was part of the disciples following Jesus. It was part of their obedience to Jesus as he led them. And so we glean a key principle of the Christian life. Sometimes we are in difficulties because our own sin and our own foolishness and our lack of biblical wisdom and applying it to our lives. Of course, even in those times, we are under God's sovereign and providential hand. We get ourselves into storms at times. But there are also times that the Lord himself brings us or leads us into hardships and difficulties. And that's a key principle that shouldn't surprise us, that as we mature in Christ, we come to see this in Scripture more and more. Contrary to the heresies of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel that teach that if you only have enough faith, there won't be any problems in life. You will go from strength to strength and health to health and wealth to wealth and everything will be smooth. Contrary to that fundamental, very serious error, the Christian life is no guarantee of a Christian's immunity from the sufferings of this world. We're going to be studying First and Second Peter in the morning, and Dr. Rogers began that study. But you think of Peter in the boat that day of the storm, a fisherman knowing the sea very well, and then I think of him writing these words about suffering in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. That is not the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That is a key biblical truth that we must store up in our hearts. And we must in the face of our fears, realizing that it is not surprising that Jesus leads his people into storms. Jesus, in fact, often leads into the storm his very children who are most zealously and faithfully seeking to advance the cause of his kingdom. You need only to have a minimal knowledge of the work of worldwide missions over the last centuries To know that those in the front lines are often those who suffer most for the cause 
of Christ and who face the most violent storms, we would say. Adoniram and Ann Judson are famous as the first overseas missionaries to be sent forth from the fledgling United States. They set sail from New England in 1812 and spent their lives bringing the gospel to Burma. Their story is one of certainly many hardships in the slow advance of the gospel in that very dark land at that time. They set sail, as I said, in 1812. By early 1824, as they had labored there for a time, the political situation in Burma began to deteriorate because war broke out between Burma and England, and all foreigners were suspected of being spies. And Aniram was arrested and confined in a death prison along with another missionary who had come where they awaited execution there. And I just read an account. Life in prison was appalling. The missionaries were incarcerated with common criminals in a filthy, vermin-infested, dank prison house with fetters binding their ankles. At night, the spotted faces, prison guards whose face and chest were branded for being one-time criminals themselves. These hoisted the ankle fetters to a pole suspended from the ceiling until only their heads and shoulders rested on the ground. By morning, the weary prisoners were numb and stiff, but the daytime offered them little relief. Each day, executions were carried out, and the prisoners never knew who would be next. What an account. Imagine spending your nights with your feet in chains up in the air and your Shoulders and head resting on the ground. Talk about back pain. This would be bad. And Judson spends a year and a half in prison. They go on this very difficult death march because uh, they have to move them. And uh, many of the prisoners die. And Judson survives that only to have his wife and newborn baby die not long after he's finally released in 1825. And Judson goes downhill into what we would call depression. And he goes out into the jungle and he he builds a little hut there and he stays out there keeping vigil out there, feeling overwhelmed with grief and feeling bad about just what he had brought his wife to. Uh, You just read about these early missionaries and their zeal for the Lord and, and their courage and yet the problems and the difficulties and the hardships that they faced. Certainly, I read these kind of accounts and think, I'm on Easy Street here in Lancaster, and what are the storms that I face? But we know that all of us face suffering, face hardship. It may be pretty mundane, but remember that it is Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, who leads us sovereignly into the storms. Secondly, The reasons Jesus leads us into the storm. The reasons Jesus led them into the storm. I want us to see three reasons that we glean from our text about why Jesus led them into the storm. The first is this, to teach them of his love for them. To teach them of his love for them, even in the storm. In verse 38, we see that uh, Mark is recording this, and certainly from Peter's firsthand knowledge of this, there are aspects of this experience that are only in Mark's 
gospel, but one of the points that only Mark records is that Jesus was asleep on the cushion in the stern. Apparently there was a cushion kept there of some sort, and he was asleep. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Think of that question. First, it's amazing that Jesus was still asleep. I tell people that I have the gift of sleep because I can fall asleep just about anywhere, anytime, place. And I'm sure Jesus was tired from the labors that he had done. And here he is asleep, calm, in the stern of the ship, stern of the boat. And the storm is breaking. I can just see the we hear the account that the waves are coming over the edge of the ship and they're afraid they're going to sink. Jesus is asleep and the boat's filling up and the disciples panicked. There was this sense of deep fear. Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you hear what they're asking? They are doubting whether Jesus really cared for them. They are losing faith in his love for them. It's a pretty astonishing fact, isn't it? They didn't know much at that point. We would say we know much more than they knew at this point. The reason Jesus was in the boat with them was because of his love for them. The reason that Jesus was in the world was because of his love for them. The reason that Jesus was going to the cross, faithfully fulfilling his Father's will, was because of his love for them. And here they cry out to him, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? So it is with us when storms arise in our lives, don't we easily doubt his love? It is frequently a fight of faith to continue to hold to the truth of God's love and care for you in Jesus Christ when we might say your boat is filling up with the water from the storms of this life. But Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. Well, secondly, not only to teach them of his love, the second reason he leads them into the storm is to teach them to trust in his word. We see at the beginning of this account that that evening, when evening had come, Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. And if you read commentaries on this, almost universally that they will tell you that Jesus Christ had spoken. They were on the sea. They were crossing the sea because Jesus had commanded it. He had spoken it. He was leading them. But they had not held on to his word in the midst of the storm to give them the assurance that they would reach the shore safely. Jesus had given them his word, but they had allowed the voice of the storm to silence the voice of their Lord. Isn't that the way it always is with us? Things seem very much more real and more active than the voice of our Lord. Sometimes it's the still, small voice of the Lord in his written word that we need to hold to when everything else seems to be yelling at us. I like the way the prophet Isaiah says it in Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. 
The image is changed a little bit there from a storm, but there are the images, darkness. And it's let him who walks in darkness. We could substitute, let him who walks through the storms of this life and has no light. What happens when you have no light, when there's no evidence of God's love, when there's no evidence of God's care maybe in the circumstance you're experiencing? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And so Jesus leads them into the storm to teach them to trust in his word. And thirdly, under this point, we see that Jesus leads them into the storm to show them a glimpse of his glory. Here we see the glory and the majesty of Jesus revealed. In verse 39, Jesus wakes up, the disciples wake him up, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. There is very strong language used in this word, rebuke. It's the same language that's used throughout the Gospels in Jesus rebuking demons, in Jesus rebuking sickness. And so Jesus rebukes demons, sickness, and storms. Of course, he rebukes the disciples as well, but that's a different story. A different theme. But we could say that behind all three of these, behind demons, behind sickness, behind storms, is the influence of the kingdom of darkness. This age, we would say, is a stormy age, and it can all be traced back to the Garden of Eden. We can't make a one-to-one correspondence and say every problem we face is a spiritual oppression of evil powers. We can't say that, but there is a sense in which we can say all the problems of this world originate in Adam's first sin, and they're all part of the brokenness of this world. Perhaps the most important thing for the disciples at this time was for a brief moment to see the majesty, the power, the glory of Jesus unveiled for a moment. Can you imagine what this would have been like? I'm sure it's something that they never forgot. For Jesus to wake up and simply rebuke the storm. It's like a a dog owner who rebukes his dog. You know, if you ever go for a walk and a dog comes running out at you, you're kind of worried. Is there an invisible fence there? Is this dog going to stop when it gets to that point? One time I worked and I rode my bike to a gardening job that I had as a young man, and I knew on this back road that there was always going to be this big black dog who would race down at me, homeowner's home, and I would get up ahead of steam on my bike, so I would go by that house at about 60 miles an hour, not quite, but, you know, because I was worried that that dog was going to come out. But do you notice, it can be the most vicious dog in the world. If the homeowner, if the master is there, the master speaks, and the dog stops, usually. Certainly the dog's not going to attack the master. It just takes a word, and the dog's tail is between his legs, and he knows the master is there. You're not really worried if the master of the dog is with you. You know that the master will control that dog. And in verse 41, notice what we find after this event. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Um, It's interesting that Jesus' rebuke of the storm and his command there 
calms the storm and calms one form of fear in the disciples' heart, their fear of the storm. But the revealing of Jesus' glory, we might say, brings with it an even greater and deeper fear. Who is this? No wonder the gospel records they were filled with great fear. That was a good kind of fear. It was the kind of fear that said, who are we dealing with here? Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Every storm and trial in life for the believer is an opportunity to see and to learn more deeply something of the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word and also the glory and power and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if the power of our Lord is exerted in unseen ways that strengthen us to persevere, we live in communion with the Lord of glory, the one who calms the storm. And there is a right fear and reverence of God that ought to be cultivated in our hearts because of it. Think of these three reasons of this test, of this trial for them and for us, to be assured of Jesus' love in the storm, to continue to trust God's word in the storm, and to seek to see the glory of Jesus revealed and made known. The storms in our lives are often very ordinary. But when you think of this example, don't we tend to fall into the same mindset that the disciples evidently had, looking too much at the storm instead of looking to our God, somehow doubting that our Lord cares, even when he has assured us of his love. And may our prayer be, Lord, let me know your power and love and your glory, even in the storm. But our final point I want to see is the calming of the storm teaches us about the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. You may think that's an odd point, but I want to try to make this point because Mark's gospel, unlike any of the other gospels, connects Jesus' calming of the storm with his narrative, with his teaching, the kingdom parables. Dr. York looked at this last time. He looked at chapter 4 and the various parables, the parable of the sower and so on. The principles and power of the kingdom, we might say, after Jesus teaches them, are illustrated for us in a real-life situation, in the calming of the storm. I believe they're also illustrated in the two accounts from chapter 5 as well, but I'm not going to go into all that. Who is Jesus that even the wind and the waves obey him? So also the assurance that no power can stand against the growth and ultimate triumph of Christ's kingdom, which is the message of these parables, comes out in what happens with the storm. Jesus reigns over the forces of nature. Jesus reigns over all evil and all chaos and the power of darkness, and his kingdom is coming. Just think with me briefly as we think about the last two parables Mark has brought to us One of them in verses 26 to 29, that's the parable of the seed sprouting. That parable of the seed being planted and the farmer goes to sleep and he he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. 
I put some grass seed in an in a, in a empty spot of our backyard, and it, I pl- it happened to plant this grass seed a couple months ago. It was about in August, and it didn't rain for weeks. There wasn't any sprouting of any seed, and I, I'd water it every once in a while, but it was so dry. You know, we had a very dry time. And so the last week or two, it's been getting more rain, and I keep going out and looking, and sure enough, finally, there are little blades of grass. It's there. Uh, but this parable of the seed sprouting is to teach that it may appear that nothing is happening, but the power of God's kingdom to overcome opposition will take place. The kingdom of God will grow. The seed is at work to produce a harvest. It's like Isaiah says in Isaiah fifty-five eleven: my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish that for which I send it forth. The kingdom will come, but it will take time. And the storm illustrates the power of the king. The Jews of Christ's day were expecting a sudden inbreaking of the kingdom. They were expecting a kingdom coming visibly with power and earthly might that would throw off the oppression of Rome. And here was Jesus. Just think about these kingdom parables and what we're seeing as the Gospel of Mark unfolds. Jesus traveling around, spreading the word of God, preaching, teaching, with miracles and healings, yes, with power, with his glory revealed in some way. But even when the crowds get too interested in that, he goes to another place. He's trying not to emphasize that. He's teaching. But even though there's this glimpse of glory and majesty, it is not what the people were expecting. It is not what the disciples were expecting. I think it's so interesting that even in the book of Acts, When the book of Acts opens up, and we read in Acts 1, verse 6, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's been appearing to the disciples at various times. But the disciples ask him in verse 6, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? It's interesting that the book of Acts opens with that. I think they're still looking for something dramatic immediately. And as you go through the book of Acts and see the gospel advance, triumph in different ways throughout the Mediterranean world. Finally, you come to the last verse in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome, and Luke records in that last verse, there's, a men- there's mention of the kingdom of God. Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and holding forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts is recording that the kingdom is coming. It is coming now. It has come. Luke shows its expansion throughout the known world of that time. And so the parable of the seed sprouting tells us, don't be surprised if God's work may seem to be taking a long time. And then there's the parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 to 32 which teach that the small beginnings of kingdom fruit eventually turn into great triumphs until there's a mighty harvest. And you think, what kingdom comes like this with such seemingly humble means, with Jesus, the lowly king, 
preaching and teaching and showing compassion and healing and then suffering and being rejected and being betrayed and being abandoned even by his own disciples and dying on a cross, but then rising again victoriously. The kingdom of God does not advance like the kingdoms of this world. And from our perspective in history, we have the privilege of seeing the fulfillment of this principle again and again, if you know church history at all. And so the door closes on the work of Christian mission in China in 1950. And then 40 years later, we see that there are 50 million Christians suddenly. We maybe shouldn't say suddenly, but in a hidden way. And now the estimates are that there are 120 million Bible-believing Christians in China. And the same could be said of other places where the gospel has just mushroomed and grown in Africa and South America and in other parts of the world. You see the point. The calming of the storm teaches us about the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. It's interesting that as we look to the election this week, Probably we struggle with some degree of fear with the candidates and with the, the position of our nation. And you think back to what other elections were like, and we tend to think back in rosy glasses. But it's interesting that probably one of the most divisive elections of the history of the United States was the 1800 election that involved John Adams for a second term, trying to run for a second term, and Thomas Jefferson. And actually, Aaron Burr was mixed in with that because when the election was done and the electors had voted, Jefferson and Burr had each achieved equal number of electoral votes because in those days, electoral votes weren't uh, specified for president or vice president. And so there was this crisis that ensued that the election was thrown into the House of Representatives between Jefferson and Burr. And there are testimony and statements from people watching this, and you could read it, and it sounds like the same things you might be reading in the newspaper today. Someone might say, it's a choice between someone without principles and someone with terrible principles. That's the kind of thing that was being said. Alexander Hamilton was there in the background, a very well-known founding father who was opposed to both of them and thought it was a terrible time. My point is this. We look at the way the kingdoms of this world come. The Bible tells us again and again, the kingdom of Jesus Christ advances in a hidden way, typically, in ways that the world doesn't notice. But Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. And it's interesting that when you get to the book of Revelation. And you see the descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth. And you see the fact that the Apostle John says, and there was no more sea. Certainly, we're not guaranteed that there's not going to be water in the new heaven and the new earth. I think that there will be. But the point is, metaphorically speaking, for the Jews, for ancient Israel, in New Testament time, the sea represented darkness and evil and chaos. And so for Jesus to calm the storm on the sea is a picture for us that Jesus the King, even though his glory was veiled in his coming, in his incarnation, Jesus Christ 
is Lord and King of the church. He is building his kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will take time. It will come in hidden ways. We shouldn't be surprised that the church is perplexed at a time like this when we see our nation and we see what's happening. But don't give way to fear. Trust that the Lord, the King of his church, is with us. He calls us to trust in his word. He calls us to believe that he loves us and he will build his kingdom. And so whether your fears have to do with your own personal life, maybe something that you face in terms of something difficult this week or this year, or whether it is fears that have to do with our national identity, whether it's storms that arise because of seeking to be zealous for the gospel and some kind of probably mild persecution that you and I would experience here for the cause of Christ, whatever the storm might be, I hope that the story of Jesus calming the storm, his declaration, peace be still, and then him upbraiding the disciples and certainly speaking to us as well, Have you still no faith? May we look with stronger and brighter faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Head of his church. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God as we can look back and see from the perspective of history triumphs of the church in ways that others who have gone before us would be astounded as we talk about millions of, of believers in parts of the world and billions of Christians on the earth. It is an amazing thing. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray that you would help us to not be so focused on our own problems and uh, issues of life, that you would help us to have a kingdom perspective on this world and on your calling in our lives. Thank you that Jesus calls us and equips us and sends us forth into the world to be persecuted like him. If they hated me, he says, they will hate you. And yet also to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, that the aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be unto life for some and unto death for others. But we know that you are the one who is the king of your church. Send us forth with that mindset, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.